0: If you'd like to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 20. Timothy was a young associate of Paul, while Paul was on his second missionary journey uh, and came to the towns of Derby and Lystra. Timothy was there. He had a good reputation with the Christians there. Timothy's mother and grandmother were believing Jewish Christians. His father was a Greek. Uh, We don't know if his father was a Christian. It kind of seems that he wasn't. So I think this gave Timothy a good perspective as he traveled with Paul to the other churches that were mixed in uh, some some Jewish Christians, some Gentile Christians Um, Timothy was with Paul at Ephesus when Paul was there for about two and a half years so Timothy knew um, the church at Ephesus and he knew the people there at Ephesus so the occasion for this letter is that at some point later Paul and Timothy visited Ephesus and they found some things going on that were problems some teaching that was a problem and some other issues in the church that were problems so Paul told Timothy okay you stay here you get this stuff straightened out I'm gonna go ahead across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia and you stay here and get this all straightened out so this letter is written from Paul back to Timothy then encouraging him giving him some more direction about what needed to be done there in the church. So let's pray and then we'll read the passage. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us um, so much insight into who you are and how you work and how you want us to work and what the church is to be like and what we're to do. We pray that as we read this passage today and, and think about it, that your Holy Spirit would give us insight into our own lives, to what you want us to do, and to how you want us to interact with each other, with you, and with the lost. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Timothy 1.18 <clears throat> says, This charge... I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme." So as we read these three verses, uh, I hope some questions might have come to your mind. So looking at these three verses, what are some questions that came to your mind? What are you thinking? I wonder what that means. What? Who can tell me? No questions? Everybody knows everything about this? (laughs) So I'll just quit now. Questions? Okay right what does it mean how did they, ship, they shipwreck their faith what does that mean who else I know there's other questions ok right what prophecies do we know about any prophecies about Timothy I'm not sure what else ah that's a big one that sounds scary What does it mean to be handed over to Satan anyway? Who else? How about what is a good warfare? What is this good warfare that we're talking about? What is holding faith in a good conscience mean? And how does that relate? And what exactly did Hymenaeus and Alexander do that Satan, that Paul said, I'm turning you guys over to Satan. (laughs) That's bad. What did they do? So we'll talk about that a little bit. So first of all, what is the warfare? It literally means that Paul is telling Timothy, war the good war. War the good war. I mean, that's not how we would normally say it. We would say wage the good warfare like it's translated or something to that effect. But it it literally says war the good war. So what is the good war? Where is that coming from? What does, what is Paul, we assume that Timothy knew what Paul was saying when he said that. What does it mean? Well, Some people think it refers back to the first part of the chapter where Paul's giving Timothy instructions. You know, I put you here to correct these people. You tell them not to teach that kind of doctrine anymore. And that's possible, but I don't think that's what it refers to. And here's why. Because if we strip out all the modifiers and we read what it says here in verses 18 and following, it says, I commit this charge to you, war the good war. I exhort therefore, chapter 2, verse 1. There's a therefore there. So what Paul is saying in chapter 2, verse 1, is based upon what he just got through saying. So I think the warfare, we're going to find out what it is if we look in the first part of chapter 2, and that's what we're going to do. So let's look at chapter 2, verse 1, through 8. Where it says, I exhort therefore, that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ, I lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So this Exhortation, this instruction, this command in chapter 2 verses 1 through 8 I think explains what Paul says here when he's telling Timothy to war the good war. So if that's true, what is he saying the good war is in these verses? He's saying that the war is for men's souls, for the souls of men and women. Like he says in verse 4, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth? And that shouldn't surprise us as Christians that the war is about the souls of people. Because that's been God's plan from before the foundation of the world. That's why Jesus came. He came to sacrifice himself to pay for our sins. So that he could purchase a people for himself. He came to redeem the souls of men. So it shouldn't surprise us. That if Paul's talking to Timothy here and saying. War the good warfare. That he's talking about the war. The battle for the souls of men. And that's what I believe he is talking about. What might surprise us. A little bit. Is the weapons that he mentions here as to how we're to fight that war because what does he say when he starts off in verse 1 he says I exhort that therefore first of all supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men and in verse 8 he summarizes by saying I will therefore that men pray everywhere lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So the first weapon that he mentions in this warfare that he calls Timothy to fight, to be engaged in, is prayer. It's prayer. Because this, this war is not a war that we can fight, it's a war that God fights. If we're to be engaged in the war, prayer is the first weapon that we need to use and the other weapon that's mentioned here in verses 5 and 6 and 7 is the gospel this is the reason Jesus came and this is the reason I'm a preacher it says this is the reason that I'm an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth So the gospel is the second weapon. Proclaiming the gospel, saying the gospel, teaching the gospel, preaching the gospel. The truth that Jesus Christ came into the world to pay for our sins so that we can have a relationship with God if we repent and turn to him. That's the second weapon. Prayer and the teaching of the gospel are the weapons in the warfare. So Paul gives this trust, he entrusts this command to Timothy war the good war and then he goes on to say therefore this is what you do you pray and you share the gospel so that's Paul's charge to Timothy so what does that mean for us is this charge just for Timothy is it just for church leaders or is this charge for all Christians Is this just something that the elders are responsible for? Well, what does it say in the text? It says in verse 1, all, all. Verse 2, all. Verse 4, all. Verse 6, all. Verse 8, everywhere. So, this charge, Paul is not saying that he wants the elders of the church to go everywhere and pray he's saying he wants all men everywhere to pray and that includes us as christians this charge that paul gives to timothy is a charge to us as christians also it's a charge to be engaged in the good war and the weapons that we are to use are outlined here one problem that I have found in my life is with regard to this war as a Christian I I am called upon at various times to be engaged in lots of different kinds of battles I have to battle my flesh I have to battle my personal sin I have to battle people who are teaching wrong doctrine which is what Timothy was doing here I have to battle the philosophy of the world that says right is wrong and wrong is right Those are all battles that I might be engaged in at different times on different fronts. What I have to remember is those battles while they're necessary for the war, they are not the war. The war, the good war, is for men's souls. Those battles that I fight support the war, but they are not the war. And the illustration that I thought of, which may not be that good, but If you have a real war, okay, you're a general, you're in charge of an actual war, soldiers have to eat, okay? If you don't have a plan to get food to the soldiers so they can eat, you cannot win the war. That's not happening. Soldiers have to eat food to win the war. They might go for a little while, but if you're gonna win the war, you gotta feed the soldiers. There has to be a plan for that. But the feeding of the soldiers is not the war. Okay, if I ask you, I see on the news there's a war in such and such a place. What's it about? Well, it's about feeding the soldiers that are going to the war. Uh, that's not right. And in the same sense, you know, the individual battles that I might fight as a Christian, while they're vital for the war, they are not the war. And I need to keep my focus on the fact that the good war is for the souls of men and it's not for any of those individual battles that I might be fighting as a Christian so another question we had is what about these prophecies Paul encourages Timothy by telling him in verse 18 and 19 according to the prophecies which went before on thee so apparently there were prophecies about Timothy and his ministry as far as I know we don't have any of those prophecies I don't know what they are but Timothy knew about them and Paul knew about them and they, Paul mentions this to encourage Timothy he says you remember what they prophesied about you and it has to do with this ministry I'm calling you to do to war the good war so Timothy could be encouraged by that so I ask you has anybody prophesied about you We don't do a lot of prophesying around here. (laughs) Has anybody prophesied about you that would encourage you in your fighting in this war? Absolutely. The Bible, the New Testament, is full of prophecies about you as a Christian, as a believer. Full of prophecies that could encourage you. We'll just read one uh, in Romans chapter 8. If you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We'll read three verses here, verses 28 through 31, where it says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate them he also called and whom he called them he also justified and whom he justified them he also glorified what shall we then say to these things if God be before us who can be against us now that's a prophecy about us as Christians God sees us as already glorified in heaven with him And we can be encouraged by prophecies like that about us as we engage in the good war. So Paul not only mentions an encouragement, but he also gives some qualifications here to Timothy. Some things that are required in order to engage in this war, in order to fight with the weapons that Paul calls us to fight with, prayer and the gospel there's something that's required for an actual soldier they're going to go to boot camp they're going to get training and besides training they're going to get conditioning okay so they're going to learn some things about what to do in the war and then they're going to practice and they're going to get in shape two aspects um a doctor okay if a doctor is going to operate on me i'm hoping that number one he knows what he's doing okay he's studied this he knows about it he's got some knowledge some education number two a little bit of experience so he's seen this done before maybe done it a few times uh, he's got knowledge and experience and that's what paul is talking about here when he says that thou mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Holding faith and a good conscience. Now faith here, I think, refers not only to just believing, but also to what we believe. Like, like Jude said in his letter that he was, he was called upon to defend the faith that was once delivered to the saints. So it's the body of teaching that we believe not only our belief and I think that's one thing that Paul is referring to here so we have faith and we have a good conscience the faith is the training part okay what the Bible says if I believe it that's faith I have to know what it says and I have to believe it and that's faith a good conscience what is a good con- how do we get a good conscience what's necessary for me to have a good conscience hmm? right I'm doing something right I'm not doing something wrong I'm obedient especially when it refers to God okay I also have to have a good conscience towards men which means I haven't offended them unnecessarily but I have to have a good conscience towards God that means I'm doing what God says Otherwise, I have a guilty conscience, not a good conscience. So practicing what God says, practicing my faith will give me a good conscience. But it says here that some people have rejected, really thrown away their good conscience. And when they did that, they shipwrecked their faith. Now, when I first thought about shipwrecking faith, I thought, okay, there's a ship, and all of a sudden, it gets in a storm and sinks. But that's not really what this word means. Um, It means, like, as described when Paul had his shipwreck in the book of Acts, they got lost, they were in a storm, they crashed on an island, and they were stranded there for three months they couldn't get off the island they couldn't go anywhere they couldn't engage in any of the activities that they were engaging in they were stuck And that's what it means when it says that by abandoning by throwing away your good conscience you get shipwrecked you get stuck you might still have your faith i was in that position for many years still had my faith but i was stuck shipwrecked might work for somebody else probably not going to work for me and that's because of our conscience now he gives examples here also because he says which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck of whom is hymenaeus and alexander Whom I have delivered unto Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So what did they do? Do we know anything more about these people? We know a little bit more about them. Because they're mentioned in 2 Timothy. And we can look there and see what it says about them. But I think these two people are some of the ones that Paul refers to in Acts 20. When he's met with the Ephesian elders, he's on the way to Jerusalem, he thinks probably he might never see him again and he gives them this warning in Acts 20 and verse 29 he says for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them so Timothy's in Ephesus, later. At this point, Paul is giving him a warning and saying, okay, this is what's going to happen. There's going to be wolves coming in the flock, and even some people among you, pointing at them, you guys, some people are going to uh, rise up and try and draw disciples away after themselves. And I think Hymenaeus and Alexander fall into that category. So let's see if we can tell what they did here. In 2 Timothy, if we look in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, verse 17 and 18, of course, 2 Timothy is written sometime after 1 Timothy. We don't know exactly how long. It says, And their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the faith have erred saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some so Hymenaeus is teaching that the resurrection is past Paul says that's an error, that is not true the resurrection is not past but he's teaching this and he's overthrown the faith of some and I think one reason he's teaching something different than the apostle Paul was teaching is because he's trying to get disciples to follow him Now, one interesting thing about what he was teaching here, that the resurrection is past, is that Paul, in Acts 24, when he gives his defense there, talking about how he maintains a good conscience before God and men, the reasoning that he gives is, there's a resurrection coming. There's going to be a resurrection. I'm going to appear before God. I want my conscience to be good I want it to be clear because there is a day of reckoning Hymenaeus is saying nah that's over don't worry about that so that's helping his conscience to be bad because he doesn't think there's going to be a day of reckoning so that's what we know about Hymenaeus in 2nd Timothy chapter 4 verse 14 Paul talks about Alexander Second Timothy 4.14 says Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil the Lord reward him according to his works of whom talking to Timothy again be thou aware also for he hath greatly withstood our words so Alexander is saying no nope, what Paul's saying that's not right he's standing up against the apostle and saying no nope, this isn't right He's not right. He has no authority to say that. Um, And so Alexander is standing against the Apostle Paul. And that's the way that he has thrown away his good conscience. If we find ourselves standing against what scripture says, saying, well, I don't think that that's really right we better have a very good reason for that or we'll be throwing away our conscience as well just like Alexander did so it also says after Paul gives those uh, two men as examples he says whom I have delivered unto Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme that sounds kind of scary what does that mean Uh, there is another place in scripture that describes that happening. Uh, If we look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 4. So in the Corinthian church there was a man in unrepentant sin that was in sexual sin and Paul chews out the Corinthian church because they're not doing anything about it. They're just letting it go and saying, well, we're so, we're so tolerant of that. Um, so Paul tells them, no, that's not what you're supposed to do. Here's what you do. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So that gives us a little insight into what he's talking about. He's saying, for the church, when they're gathered, that's congregationalism, they're getting together and they're making decisions and they're saying, okay, you are being turned over to Satan. You have no longer had the protection of the church because you're living in unrepented sin. So you're turned over to Satan. And Paul says, why? For the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So it's redemptive. He's not just saying, okay, burn this guy. What he's saying is, we want him to be saved. In order to do that, we are releasing him to Satan to do whatever Satan wants to do. And hopefully the guy will repent then and come back to the Lord. And that's what Paul, I think, is saying about Hymenaeus and Alexander. Obviously, um, they're still around for 2 Timothy. So they haven't gone away. And they're still causing trouble. But Paul's method is to turn them over to Satan and let nature take its course. In fact, in 1 John, the Apostle John mentions that in chapter 5 verse 16 if any man see his brother in a sin which is not a sin unto death he shall ask and he shall give him life for that sin not unto death there is a sin unto death I do not say that he shall pray for it so at some point God might take us home if we don't repent that's what John says there's a sin that's unto death if if that's happening don't worry about praying for it because God's doing what he's doing that doesn't mean the person is necessarily lost God has promised to discipline us as his children and he will do whatever is necessary if you're a good parent you'll do whatever is necessary to discipline your child God's the perfect parent and he says there is a sin that's unto death So, Hymenaeus and Alexander turned over to Satan. So, in order to war the good war, all we have to do is have faith and obey God. So, pretty easy, right? Just have to obey God. No big deal. If you've been a Christian for a little while, you might think, oh, sometimes that is a big deal. That's kind of hard. In fact, it's impossible. How do I keep a good conscience... (laughs) If I have to obey God, because sometimes I don't obey God. Sometimes what I read in Scripture I don't do. Sometimes what the Holy Spirit tells me to do through my conscience, I don't do. So what shall we do about that? Is this a situation where we need to clench our fists and grit our teeth and do what's right or, or not do what's wrong? Is that what Paul's talking about here when he says, "Keep a good conscience? Because, how does that work? It doesn't really work. And I can show you it doesn't really work from Scripture if we look at Romans chapter 7. Paul here again writing in Romans chapter 7. Starting in verse 15, we'll just read about three verses here. We'll read 15, 18, and 19. Paul says, As a Christian, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right. And that's what tells me he's a Christian, because non-Christians don't really desire to do what's right. But not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So if it's necessary for me to have a good conscience in order to be engaged in the good war, how can I do that? Uh, my experience has been that you know, unsaved people generally think, how, how do they think they can get saved? They may not think they are saved, but how do they, how do they general th- generally think, if they're in some other religion or they're whatever, how do you get saved? You do good stuff, right? If my good works outweigh my bad works, and God's going to just kind of ignore the rest of it, I'll go to heaven if I'm a good person, if I do good stuff. The problem is, a lot of Christians think that way after they become a Christian. They think that, okay, I'm saved by grace through faith, just like it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Very clear. Yet after we become Christians, sometimes we get the idea, okay, now I'm saved, now I've got to start working for Jesus. Uh, that's not going to work. Because we, our sanctification works the same way as our salvation. We do need to be engaged... But it needs to be Jesus doing the work, not us, because we can't do it. Just like Paul says here, I want to do it, but everything I don't want to do, that's exactly what I do. And what I do want to do, I never do that. It doesn't work to try and work for Jesus. So how does it work? In Philippians it says that as ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Our sanctification, and by sanctification I mean the process that we go through after we're saved to become more like Jesus. Okay, Because we're saved in the past. If we're saved now, we were saved at a point in time from the penalty of sin. No more condemnation. We are being saved right now from the power of sin that's a process it doesn't happen all at once that's why we have all this instruction in the New Testament tell us about it what happened to us after we got saved we will be saved ultimately when we are freed from the presence of sin we'll no longer have sin we won't be in this condition that Paul talks about here in Romans chapter 7 so our sanctification that process that we're undergoing as a Christian is by grace through faith, just like our salvation. So how do we know that? Well, let's look at Romans chapter 6 is one place we can see it. Romans chapter 6, we'll read three or four verses here. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. This comes just before Romans 7 that we read about Paul. It says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed that henceforth we should not serve sin so Paul's saying here God is saying here in this Romans he's already been through I mean the first five chapters have talked about you know why we're sinners why we need to be saved how we're saved by grace through faith Romans 6 here he says since we are Christians our old man which is our fleshly nature our old nature is crucified with Christ what is crucified? killed right? dead it's crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed that henceforth we should not serve sin so if the bible says that we were crucified with Christ, and we don't have to serve sin. Is that right? Do we, are we going to say yes, that's right? Yes. That is right. That's what the Bible says, very plainly. So how, does that, how do we apply that? Well, in verse 11 it says, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, I think the ESV says count reckon count those are accounting terms means we're going to figure this out we're going to calculate that we're going to add all this up we're going to come to the total and we're going to say okay I am dead to sin but alive to God that's the realization of it that's the faith God said it here in verse 6 God wants us to go through and see okay God says it, this is how it happened, I believe that's true. That applies it to me, I, I do believe that. And then as a result, we have the option in verse 12 and 13 of who we yield to. It doesn't say to work for Jesus. It says... Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So the way that we have a clear conscience, a good conscience, the way that we are able to obey God is to, first of all, understand what God says happened to us when we got saved. Realize that, yes, indeed, that does mean me. And then yield to God, rather than yielding to sin. So we can have a clear conscience. Of course, like we'll mention here when we do communion, we aren't perfect. We always sin. Even though we try and have a clear conscience, even though we try and yield to God, there's always going to be sin. And that's why in 1 John, John, the Apostle John says that we are to confess our sins because God is faithful and just because of what Jesus did to remove that sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll forgive us our sins. And cleanse us, cleanse us from unrighteousness. So Paul entrusts Timothy. With a charge. He says. Wage the good warfare. War the good war. That a charge applies equally to us if we're Christians. God doesn't expect non-Christians to participate in this war. They are what the war is about because the war is for their souls. Other battles that we might be engaged in support the war, but they are not the war. And I do need to remember that as I go about the various battles on various fronts in my life as a Christian. Don't get bogged down in other areas. Always remember that the war is about the souls of men. The weapons that Paul calls on us to use, prayer, first of all, and then teaching the gospel. Pray and teach the gospel. Those are the weapons. Because... God is the one who's in charge of the war. We are given encouragement to wage the good war by the prophecies. The prophecies about us that are in the New Testament. That's why we have all these epistles in the New Testament to tell us what happened to us when we got saved. Otherwise, we, might, we wouldn't know. That's what this tells us the qualifications to be engaged in this war and to wage the good war faith and a good conscience we have to know what the Bible says we have to believe it and we have to obey it and we obey it not by gritting our teeth and clenching our fists but we obey it by believing what God has said he did for us when he saved us and trusting him yielding to him Those who throw away their good conscience shipwreck their faith. They're stranded. They're waiting for somebody to get them off the sandbar. They're waiting for somebody to come along with another ship and haul them back so they can continue about their business. And the Lord will do that for you if you're a Christian, but it may take a while. And if we know other people that are shipwrecked, We should be helping them out. Okay? We need to pay attention to our fellow believers. And if somebody is stuck, we need to be helping them out. A good conscience comes through obedience to God, to obedience to the Scripture, and to obedience to the Holy Spirit. And obedience is by grace through faith, not by works. So we need to wage the good warfare. I thought that a couple of verses in our call to worship were really applied to this section here in Timothy. In Verses 3 and 4 it says in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who hath clean hands and a pure heart. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Who is the King of Glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. This battle is the Lord's and he will win it. He commands us to be involved in it also. And that's a blessing if we can do that. If we will take up the tools and take up the qualifications that God has given us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you, Lord, that you want us to be engaged in the good war. We pray that as we go about our lives in this week... That we will look for opportunities where you are fighting for the souls of men and women. And that we will engage. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.